Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Alban Dubalieu. Uh, we're at Abbott Claim in Carlton. It's July 9th, 2020. Are we in Carlton? Did I say that right? Yes, we are. Yeah. Abbott Claim in Carlton. It's July 9th, 2020. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Alban. Uh, first question for you, most important question, why wine? Um, yeah, why wine? Well, so I'm, I'm French. I grew up in France. Um, and it happens that I was, I really grew up fascinated by wine. It was one of the things that always attracted my attention growing up. Um, and that has to do with my family and my family don't own a winery or, or vineyards, don't have vineyard holdings in, in France. But my grandparents, uncles and cousins all lived in, in the Loire Valley and in the west of France. Um, my, paternal, my maternal grandfather was a retired engineer and I would spend summers growing up from, you know, being a, a, a toddler to being a, know, 10, 12 or something. I spent some, my parents would drop my sister and I off to, um, to the Loire Valley to my, my grandparents. And uh, the summer were made of fishing, um, mushroom hunting and uh, and uh, cellar visits, vineyard visits. So we'd visit the local vignerons, the local, the local wine producers, and uh, my grandfather would, would buy wine. I mean, he was, he was a retired engineer, so I had a, a, a little bit of money aside, you know, kind of a uh, middle class, but comfortable, comfortable retirement. Mm. So he would, uh, yeah, he would just buy wine around. I remember in his cellar, in his little cellar, in his garage underground, there was a little bit of Burgundy as well, a little bit of Alsace wines, but yeah, I mean, if one of my earlier memories about wine is probably visiting cellars with them in the Loire, in Chinon, a lot, a lot, we'd do a lot in Chinon, uh, we'd go to Vouvray, we'd make, make, the, make the trek a little bit west, um, but uh, Chinon was really his backyard and, and I just remember kind of the feelings and, and really the, the, the smells of a moist, cool underground barrel cellar you know what you have so it's just you're the smell of wine aging and barrels in in in, in cold and moist caves is a uh, is a memory that that i have and I, I don't know if i can date it but it's just been something i've always had with me and uh yeah smelling you know not necessarily tasting or drinking wine very young but at least definitely smelling wine and, and a lot with them and and even sometimes he would buy some some uh, some wine in bulk, so would just come home and bottle it, and, and so we'd have a lot of shiners in his cellar of his favorite producers. He would buy, I don't know, a little piece of a barrel, and then we'd bottle it, and so on. So, yeah, a lot of uh, those kind of first-hand experiences when I was a kid um, around vineyards, around wine producers, smelling wine, tasting wine, bottling wine, and then I kind of had a, a different angle on this thing as well from my paternal grandfather who was a peasant on, in the west of France, closer to the Atlantic, um, who after coming back from the Second World War was a, um, he was a, a prison guard in, on the Ile de Ré, 
on a beautiful little island in the Atlantic. And then after that, when he retired, he came back home and he planted, I mean, he had a big garden and had a little bit of, uh, a, a, a little bit of uh, a, few, a couple of hectares of, of mixed crops and including some rows of vines. And so I would also, you know, help, help him. Um, I remember hedging when I was a kid. Um, I remember the few barrels he had in his garage as well and his little basket press and so on. And, and he'd make what he'd call the vin courant, which just can translate by common wine. Just uh, vin courant, yeah, it's just, every, just everyday wine, just wine that's around. And that's, that's really also, that's really, that's really, uh, I think was important in how I perceive wine. And especially since I've been coming here, I've been more and more aware of, aware of um, how the, the relationship people may have with wine and I, and I realized that mine is specific because of those uh, early exposures to wine and, and, and kind of the way I was exposed to wine and, and how I saw it as a, as a part. It was, it was just a very simple, just a very simple uh, relationship to wine and definitely wine of value because every time there was wine that was on the table with grandparents, parents and so on, it was always kind of the center of the conversation. I always talked about where it came from and how you want to smell this and what you smell and taste it, what you taste and so on. And here's the varietal, here's the region. Um, but it was a very, you know, it was very small and very, very simple, mm -hmm. kind of a commodity. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't expensive, it wasn't luxury, it wasn't something to uh, endlessly talk about and, and kind of conceptualize and intellectualize. It was just a very straightforward uh, drink. Mm -hmm. So anyway, but because there was this um, interest, there was this, there was this, this extreme care into making wine, buying wine, tasting wine, enjoying wine. It always, that's the reason why I kind of got fascinated with it because just it, it seemed to be the thing that people really, really cared about mm -hmm. uh, as much as the, the really good dish that you made and you really cared about and you're putting in front of your guests. And opening a bottle of wine, there was always, always a ceremony around it, even though it was simple wine. That really kind of got me um, interested and fascinated. So yeah, um, but I guess I didn't really finish your your question because why did I end up getting into wine? Really enough, because it was such a commodity, because it was so simple. I never thought there was a career into wine that was working to wine. Again, my family didn't own a vineyard, so I didn't have a vineyard to take over. So there was no writing on the wall or anything. There was no clear path, and I didn't think there was a path at all. I don't think there was a path for an outsider to get to get into the wine industry or the wine world. Mm -hmm. So it's only, I ended up studying agronomics in the south of France, in French Catalonia, in Perpignan, uh, just 30 minutes north of the Spanish border. And there, in my second year, there was an enologist from Montpellier who came and gave us some viticultural classes and we started working a small vineyard that was uh, within the campus, that we had within the campus. Um, and we made some wine, and we had um, and we had an allergist come and yeah, tasting classes, allergy classes, wine making classes, a little ba basic mm -hmm. culture and so on. And I just started. I actually, I, I ended up asking her just, what do you do? Like, what is you? You obviously don't own a vineyard. You don't produce wine for yourself, but you have knowledge, and you have this enologist title or whatever that may be. How did you get there, and what what can you do with that? And as soon as I realized that there was just no going back for me, I just as soon as I realized that there was a you could get a degree and get a job into wine production. Um, I didn't realize it was possible, but I, as soon as I realized it was, I just, yeah, next year I moved up to Burgundy to do um, the undergrad in viticulture and then the masters in winemaking and so, yeah.
there's just no yeah there was no question anymore tell me about the once that light bulb kind of goes on for you tell me about the the, the formal education process and and what you as you set out maybe what you saw your career in wine looking like yeah um um so the formal education parts so again i started as um i did years in agronomics and there was a little viticulture there was a different plant physiology and there's a tiny bit of viticulture in there but that allowed me to get in in, in the u.s you call you talk about credits even though it doesn't exist in, in the french system but i definitely had equivalents the, the two years i had done in agronomics were basically giving me the first two years i could have done done in pure viticulture and so i just had to do the last year of viticulture to get my undergrad in burgundy and then in the same institute l'institut julio in dijon um i just just kicked in right away into the the, the winemaking and allergy masters uh so that's you know it's a uh, yeah about the um, the formal education yeah in in dijon it's interesting it's uh it's a it's a research institute with uh different undergrad and masters degrees um there's also you know and you're, and you're in the heart of burgundy so with friends you know on weekends or when we had free time we also kind of go down to bone and to the villages and just taste around and, and make friends so i'm happy it was not just a formal education i made friends one of my best friends is you know has a winery in the one of the best friends i met in in and the masters has a winery in, in Macon. Mm -hmm. um, so we've also made friends down there and just kind of, you know, just uh, able to conjugate the theory with the, with the practical, with the, mm -hmm. with the, how do you say the, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the practical mm -hmm. aspects. And then also in that, in, that, um, in that undergrad and masters, you have to do internships and harvest in, in the middle, of course. So uh, that's all good and, and important. Um, how I saw my, my path after that oh god i had no idea i was already happy enough to be to be doing wine i mean what i wanted what i knew is that i wanted to make wine mm -hmm. i was actually surprised i was very surprised and I, I still i'm still not sure um that there was probably half of my class who got into that masters of winemaking without obviously not the intention the drive to make wine mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and um and some of those people actually i know for a fact are not even in not doing anything that has anything to do with wine at all um it's yeah that's i mean that's another discussion that's criticizing the the education system which is a mess here and there and everywhere um it's difficult um but um what was i going to say yeah um for me though and and the friends and and kind of the friends i made there was no question that it was all going to be about making wine mm -hmm. uh, well whew. Um, I'm not from Burgundy. I, I was just, I just got to Burgundy because I wanted to, and I loved it from the get-go, and I, and I still love it so much. Um, but it's a, it's a tight, it's a, it's a, it's a tight knit of a place. Um, so it's, it's not like there's a job opening in Burgundy every other week. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't happen. Like when someone is in a position of technical director or head winemaker in Burgundy, usually, you know, it's when he retires, uh, if you're, if you're on the on top of the already on, on their list you, you you get a call but yeah it's um so i just i didn't really know um i didn't really know i just knew that i wanted to uh, make wine and work harvests and and so it took me but I, I knew that i wanted responsibilities really really quickly um i knew that I, i've always been very critical of 
of what I was being taught or how I was being told to do things. So, and then doing harvests, my first little, my, my, you know, first hands-on experience, I was already starting to build my own ideas of how I would like to do things and when things were not done, how I, how I thought how would I would have liked to see them done um, with even my lack of experience in my youth. I thought that I want to do it by myself mm -hmm. and, and I want to be able to, to have a say in exactly how things are. Mm -hmm. being done and wine is being made and, and, and grapes, grapes are being handled and treated and so on mm -hmm. um, yeah so I didn't have a clear path I just I really just went with with what was being put in front of me mm -hmm. and I met my wife in Burgundy who's American so I'm like okay well maybe try to do harvest in the US and actually my friend Thomas at Lingua Franca who's uh, who was a few was Older, older than I am, so he was uh, finishing his studies in Dijon when I was starting. But he told me, uh, you know, the, if you want to go to, he had just come back, I think, from Gallo in Napa, in California. And um, and I told me, you know, next time I'm going to Oregon, and if you want to go to the U.S., that's where you should go, Pinot and Chard and so on. And, and so, and at the same time, I was, I also just did harvest for the Druins. Mm -hmm. So I met Veronique. He told me, want to come do harvest in Oregon for us? And so it's just kind of, I had just made my wife, who's American. So yeah, it worked out pretty well and then just came and did a harvest here and then I was going to do harvests in Australia, but that didn't happen because I got offered a job at White Rose next to the, the Druins in, in the Dundee Hills. Mm. So yeah, again, I didn't really, I've never really planned too much. Although I am, I like to have a plan laid out in front of me, but I guess now, but at the time I just, I just <laughs> let, let it happen and it's still happening, I guess. Mm. So why not? Yeah. Before we get to your kind of various stops in Oregon, I'm curious, you, you mentioned um, kind of from the start, making wine was, was your interest. What was it about the, the process or about learning about making wine that, that intrigued you so much that kind of pulled you in right away? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I loved, I loved the products. And I, I, for me, I grew up with the love of, of the products and, and what, it, what it did to people and what it could symbolize. And, and I really saw it as a... You know, it's both an agricultural product. I mean, fundamentally, it is an agricultural, agricultural product. And when you come down to it, that's what it only should be seen at. But then if you want to take a step further, it's also became a cultural product, right? It's as winemaking is as old as civilization. And it's, it, says, it says something about where people live, how they live. Um, um, yeah, it just really says about something about their values. Mm -hmm. So I've always loved the product. Now... And I thought that the only way for me to interact with, with wine was to make it. Um, I didn't want to be a taster on the sidelines. I didn't want to be, um, um, I didn't want to be, uh, how do you say, uh, un témoin, like uh, on the sidelines and just, I just really wanted to be, I thought for me there was just one process, there was just one thing to do in wine. Mm -hmm. Thinking about wine, writing about wine, tasting wine for, but just tasting wine, just kind of getting at the very end of the process was not interesting. And then, um, so yeah, I just had to be, it had to be making wine just because for me that was the only, that was the only meaningful way for me to connect with, with the product that I had come to be so interested in. And yeah, there was just no, yeah, I guess that's, that's the only thing that made sense. That's it. Tell me about your initial impressions of Oregon when you did, when you came here. So you came here to work at, at, um, at Domaine Drouin? Yeah. My very first impression, um, I was told it was, and I, I live in, I've been living in the Willamette Valley for seven years now, but the, you know, I was expecting the green, beautiful countryside that every, everyone uh, 
described me and my first drive down to the countryside was driving on the 99 from the airport to Dundee which is basically a non-stop of uh, malls and gas stations so that was my very first impression with a lot of big trucks um, so that was my very first impression it was a lot of asphalt sidewalks um, concrete buildings and large trucks that was my very first impression um, then I'm sure you you want to you probably want to talk more about the wine industry or is it uh, or the culture? Um, yeah, people amazing amazingly welcoming, just very casual. There's there's just a casualness, if that's the proper word. I think casualness. There's a casualness about people and here that is just wonderful. Um, yeah, I you know I did six months of harvest with the druids and uh, the. And the team at the this, 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 the winemaking team at DDO is still good friends of, of mine and uh, Aaron um, Veronique's assistant there is just was amazing at just into, I was there was all two other French guys with me at Harvest and more people than that but just amazing people you know making people at ease and and it's just a general thing right it's just people are very casual and, and they want to have fun and so on and um, so I thought that that was that was that was new. That was interesting. Just the way people were just so casual and mm. so open mm. and so and so welcoming. So that was great. Um, what else? I'm trying to think back. What did I think? Did the work surprise you in any way? Was there anything different about mm. the way things were being done here? Well, I mean, again, my first expression was working for the Druins and after having worked for the Druins, so there was a common thread. And it, is also, it wasn't also 100% Oregonian, it was also, there's, a little, there's a chunk of French mm -hmm. in there. Mm -hmm. um, and I love the Druins, the, the Druin family so much. I mean, Véronique and, and her parents, uh, Françoise and Robert, are just the most wonderful people in the world. Um, so it was, yeah, it was easy, it felt, and there was other two French guys from Burgundy, and it was just, it was pretty easy to fit in. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess when I really had to fit in, when I kind of faced not being at home anymore, was after harvest, when I had the harvest line lined up for Australia, but at the same time, you know, because we liked it and I realized that there was opportunities to maybe get some more serious work in Oregon. Um, I had just met Jacques Lardière from Maison Louis Jadot that was in 2013, and that's when they had, that's when they bought Resonance. And they were visiting, and I remember talking with them, and Veronique afterwards telling me, you know, if, if, you, if you want to stick around, I know several people, there's Jacques here, and and so she kind of put it, put it in my brain, that in my mind, that uh, you know, there's, there's things to do, and and uh, and yeah, they, people could be interested in, 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 uh, in giving me some work, maybe. Yeah. So yeah, she wrote me a nice letter of recommendation that I started to send, send around with a, with a resume. And I just did that between the end of the harvest at Domain Druin and when I was supposed to take off for Australia. Mm -hmm. I, was, I wasn't planning on, I, was, I think at the time, if I remember well, I was just planning on maybe looking for something after coming back from Australia, a harvest that could turn into something serious, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But again, no big plans. I had just got a green card at the time, just because, you know, if we, you know, just in case, I mean, it's good to have it. Because my wife and I just didn't know where we were going to be living, US or France, no idea. Mm. Um, but yeah, I ended up um, meeting the people at White Rose Estate um, up in the Dundee Hills, and um, they, uh, they offered me a, a position of assistant winemaker, which I took and stayed there for a bit over two years. So I worked with 
Jesus Guillen for a bit more than two years in that in that little winery there. And uh, and that's when I that's that's when I got that's when I started living in Oregon and, 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 and meeting Oregon and, and the people and so on and mm. and realizing the differences with France and so on and the culture and yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that, about about your kind of first non non French uh -huh. winemaking experience. Yeah, um, yeah, that was it. Well, from the winemaking part, I realized that, um, not you know, wine knowledge travels. Say winemaking knowledge, for example, I don't know technical knowledge. It travels really well, right? We have the we have the internet now. Um, now, what you make of it is really really relies on who you are and how right, your values what is your culture so to talk about wine specifically how you interact with wine how do you see wine what is your perception of this whole process mm -hmm. um, and so I realized that um, there was just a complete different sensibility for me at least I mean, that's just that was my first impression there was also even ways to interpret the knowledge that um, was written black on white for me, but yeah, there was just ways of interpret knowledge that um, I, I, I guess I didn't, yeah, I was, I was struggling with a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, and then also the whole, just, it's called the wine business. Yeah, we don't, that's not, that's not some, that's not how we call it in, in Europe in general. I mean, it's le monde du vin, it's the world of wines, the monde du vino, it's, it's not the business, it's just the world of it. So it's just the people. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, so that, that, that I think, that, that tell, it does tell a lot. Um, it says a lot about kind of how perception of, you know, why people start, how they start wineries, why they start them, um, how they approach this new business, this new process. And uh, yeah, that, 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 that was different. And then to that you add the whole, um, the whole wine less as a, an agricultural product still as a cultural product and more and more as a rare luxury product and um and of you know of course it exists in france um but it really started existing only in the 80s when the markets opened up to the us when the us market opened up and that's when those great wines just the prices of those great wines went through the roof, and that's mm -hmm. when people started collecting and speculating. Um, so there's really there's there's this there's this difference in value and culture that really impacts how people interact with wine, how they make wine, how they grow vineyard, how they even plant vineyard, how they even think, how they even think about planting a vineyard, why, how, um, and same, yeah, winemaking, uh, marketing, obviously a big thing. And also just talking about wine and how people write about wine, how they score wines, how, what scores mean, what exposure means. Mm -hmm. All of these things, I just realized the importance of all of those things here. What again, my, my first interaction with wine was I think a bit more straightforward and simple. Mm -hmm. So did it change your did it change your approach at all? Did it make you less excited about it, more excited no. about it? Did it? No, oh no, no, no. I've never, I never doubted, and and never, um, it never changed how I felt about mm -hmm. wine and why I wanted to make wine, and why I love drinking wine and tasting wine and sharing wine. Um, no, the only thing it just it just made me again just want to do it, have more more say about how things are done and how things are 
how how a story is told and how wine is presented and enjoyed and and of course how vineyard is even how vineyard is planted just even thinking about planting a vineyard about making wine about just all those things there's different intentionality uh, when you yeah i just i just wanted to i just wanted to make those things happen for myself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah very fortunate to be given the opportunity to do it for myself Ask about that in just a second, but I'm I'm curious first if you, in terms of winemaking style, obviously White Rose has a very well-known style that's mm-hmm. that's that's different than many others. Tell me about what you kind of learned at, at DDO and at White Rose for your own personal kind of winemaking style yeah. and, and background. So when I was finishing at DDO and Veronique planted the seed in me of um, you know, maybe there could be opportunities in Oregon and, and, and looking for those, I started tasting and meeting people and kind of shortlisted places I was places I was interested in and White Rose was interesting to me because one of the very first ideas that I may have had about winemaking when I was in Burgundy is that for me the just whole, whole cluster making wine whole cluster was the most normal way to make wine the most straightforward way um, and straightforward means a lot is is a big part of how I see making wine is that it has to make sense on a very simple level. It has to be very, can it be complicated? If it's complicated, it's because we've made it complicated. Um, it's, it's agriculture, it's fermentation, it's, it should be, if, I always saw it as a, as a pretty honest, transparent agricultural and cultural product. And if you want it to be that, there should be as little human-induced complications and ego, that's another thing. Um, uh, put into that mix, um, if, if you do that, I think you're losing, you're losing the thread, you're missing something. Um, so back to whole cluster, that was just one of the many things that was exemplifying that, that feeling, not that concept, but more of a feeling for me, mm-hmm. was that you harvest that cluster and you end up and you end up having to put it through a machine to remove the stock, but putting it all together in the fermenter just works just as well. Um, so why, why do you do that? Mm-hmm. Oh, because you want control. You want to control on the style. Oh, that's why do you want to control the style? I, again, um, that's not you're losing transparency. You're losing honesty in your process. Um, so we distem quite a bit of fruit just you know here um, I've I'm very I hope I'm very thoughtful about all cluster just because you obviously have to understand exactly what those things lead to but mm-hmm. but um, this kind of youthful dogmatic uh, vision of mine at the time uh, really led me to uh, to be interested into white rose mm-hmm. and even that before in when I was in, when I was in Burgundy I always I knew that also early on I, I I love, I, I tend to love whole cluster wines mm-hmm. anyway, so, uh, but it has to be thoughtful. Um, when I started here, for example, the first vintage I did, zero whole, not a single whole cluster, not, not, a single, not a single whole bunch went to the fermenters, just because you have to, you have to know what you're working with before you, you go all crazy. Mm-hmm. You have to be thoughtful about it. Um, and that has changed since, but it's, it's, it's about learning, it's about, about, it's about being careful and, and doing it well. But yeah, I got excited into white ro- to about white rose because it had it was a, it was a small, very hands-on winery. It was a tiny place, 
and there was this yeah this this whole whole cluster thing that always appealed to me at the time when I was younger so <laughs> yeah still does but yeah so what happens next after white rose um after white rose um the people at the people at chapter 24 and double zero wines reached out and that was in February or March 2016 and so Mark Tarloff at the time had started chapter 24 in 2012 I believe yeah 2012 and the following year had started a label called double zero which I think got some press at the time for mm -hmm. sure people mm -hmm. were talking about um, and Mikey Etzel was making those wines um, Louis-Michel Ligébeler was consulting, was working with them. Um, and since those projects tend to be ever-changing, things changed. And it came to early 2016 where they didn't have a winemaker anymore to make uh, the double zero wines. So they reached out to me and I uh, left White Rose after a little bit more than two years and was and became the winemaker for double zero wines. So I. Yeah, I was asked to make uh, to make some uh, some small production, high ex uh, um, expensive wine in Amphoras. Mm -hmm. We were renting space at Coelho Winery at the time in Amity, mm -hmm. which was a really wonderful place to work with. I gotta say, the Coelhos were just was just really great, and the winemaking there, Chris, was it was just it was an amazing playground for me. I just could do whatever I wanted, and they really gave me room, and and they were just really really flexible and helpful, and it was amazing. And so yeah, I got to make. Um, I, I worked for Double Zero in 2016, and at the same time, Mark Tarloff wanted to create a new label with, uh, within Chapter 24 called Alit, which has still uh, 9th of July 2020, today, still has a tasting room in Dundee. Um, and again, those things are changing. Um, but yeah, um, so yeah, I made those Alit wines in 2016 as well, while I was doing Double Zero. So it was, an it was such a, an amazing year for me because um, it was finally the first time I was given the keys to making wines mm -hmm. um, to a project. And I got to make the wines of Double Zero. I think at the time it was just about, we made about 700 cases, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So the Pinot Noir was in Amphoras and open top uh, punchons. I would take the, 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 the top of a punchon, the head of a punchon and just ferment in there. Uh, we'd be snipping berries one per one with little clippers and just filling them for us. Oh yes, filling them for us, um, uh, filling for us, filling punches and, and just fermenting those delicately. Um, made some, studied the Chardonnay program there. Oh no, actually, I guess they they had started making making Chardonnay in 2015, but before that was only Pinot. Mm -hmm. So 2016 was the second Chardonnay vintage for Double Zero. And at the same time, I was doing Alitz, and Alitz was about 7,000 cases of Pinot Noir exclusively. And that I was to make at, uh, as Custom Crush. So I made, I had wine made at Northwest Wine Company, at Lingua Franca, first vintage of Lingua Franca in 2016, when it was still finishing to build and making wine. Finishing to build, they had, they had occupancy, but it was, it was a breezy, still a breezy building. <laughs> And, um, and at the, third, the third place was at Witness Tree, which Chapter 24, um, or Chapter 24 Associated uh, mm -hmm. Fund had just, bought, had just bought Witness Tree and the old winery there. 
where Heath, our VM manager, VD Contrast, um, used to work before he was at Bethel Heights. Mm. Um, and so I had wine made at Lingua Franca by Thomas, at Northwest Wine Co. by uh, Anne and Brian and the team there, the wonderful team at, at Northwest. And um, at Witness Tree by Felipe Ramirez, who, uh, who if you haven't interviewed, you should. Um, who is one of the best, most thoughtful, um, smartest winemakers um, in the valley, I think. I very, I mean, I, and, and there's a lot of amazing people in, in Oregon um, of all generation. And Felipe is in his early 40s and is brilliant. Um, and so he, he was also making some wine for the early, he was, I was having some wine made there at Witness Tree for Elite. And so every day I would um, work at Coelho, um, make the wines, work the Emporas and the Punchons and so on. And then I would drive um, to Northwest, sit with those guys, taste, 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 talk, 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 and then drive to Lingua Franca. See, hey, Toma, taste, 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 talk, talk, talk. Felipe, and usually at the end of the day with Felipe, and I would give him a hand to like empty a tank or something. And, yeah, and then I would go back to Coelho maybe and so on. And, my wife would some, we were living in McMinnville at the time, so my wife would like, would drive to Coelho at nine or 10 in the evening and help me do a little something until midnight. So it was, I, it was fun. I was 25 years old. Um, I was asked to make um, definitely some of the most expensive wine in, in, in Oregon as well, which was just a ridiculous undertaking. Um, it had gotten all that press. Um, and it was just, I loved it. I was, I was so um, driven by the, by the challenge and the, fun, the, the team was so fun. Felipe is such a good friend of mine. Ryan Hannaford, the, the, the VM manager, such a good friend of mine. Just, just amazing, amazing drive. Um, I enjoyed working for Mark Tarloff. Um, I did. He, 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 he really is, um, yeah, he likes to, he pushes you and puts you out of your comfort zone. And I think, being 25 and having done two years at White Rose, that's exactly what I needed. I really need to do to um, to uh, to be to be challenged and then just to really work my ass off and just try to do my very best and, and try to impress and so on. So hmm. that's what I did um, for. And then, so I guess if we're still moving forward on moving forward with time. I arrive in February or March of the following year, 2017. And while I had absolutely no intention of leaving, because again, I was having great fun, um, I got an email out of the blue from Anthony Beck, who presented himself as uh, the owner of a label called Angela Estates, um, which I had, uh, I don't know if, had mildly heard about but there's just so many labels so, so many brands in, in Oregon that it was just you know tell me about it something something I may have heard of and I didn't really know much about and, and nothing nothing st stuck really mm -hmm. and uh, he had he was reaching out to me on recommendation of Veronique Dumois, Um and he was looking for a winemaker and uh, the wines have been made at Kenwright's for the past 12 or 13 years and um, and he wants to build a winery and he wants a winemaker to to see the whole the whole the new version of, of this whole project which has been a sleeper and uh, that's definitely definitely been a sleeper the brands everything was was um, everyone admits on on cruise control um, 
and it was time to um, to take the next big step for him and he reached out and and um, and I remember because I got his email during a very busy week Mark Teloff was here Mark had flew from New York he had brought psalms with him um, we were very busy just tasting and, and driving to a vineyard and to another vineyard and I think we had Pedro Parra who's still consulting with Rose and Arrow now with Felipe uh, Pedro was here so we were doing soil pits and just driving from vineyards to vineyards and, and just talking the next big plans and so on and, and all the amazing the, all the amazing things we we're going to be doing um, and so I think I, I think I quickly told Anthony I don't have time to answer your email it was just not, it was a thoughtful email he had sent me and, and I told him honestly I don't I'd like to send you a response that honors the, the, how much thought and intention you've put in, in, in your in you reaching out to me so um, I'll do that next week um, and then I finally sat down and I did and I really didn't want to leave and what I knew of Angela Estate was um, didn't didn't spark a, a burning desire in me to jump ships either. But I went and met him because because I had to honor Veronique Veronique Dorn's um, recommendation. There's <laughs> Veronique, I thank you very much, but I don't need your help. No, <laughs> that's not you know that that there's no way. I mean Veronique is yeah means means Veronique's guidance means a lot to me. Um, so of course I was going to meet him. I was I was I was at least going to do that, and meeting him just yeah changed it all. Anthony is is um, a rare breed. Um, people so passionate and so genuine and so kind of like him, with such a a long a serious long term vision for thing. Um, I found that so valuable, um, and it drew a pretty strong contrast with where I was at the time with Double Zero, um, which was more in the moment. You know, it was it was ever changing, and it wasn't more in the moment, and there was a lot of creative energy and so on, which is which is amazing, which is great and very appealing when you're young. Um, and then meeting Anthony, I realized, oh yeah, there's that too, the Drouin family, multi-generational wine family, long-term outlook, take the time to do things well, work the vineyard, buy the buy the lands, don't source fruit too much, just buy the land, work the land, then make wines, understand your vineyards, and when you when you have that down. Maybe you build a winery. Mm -hmm. Step-by-step step, step step investments. There's this more long-term multi-generational. And by multi-generational is the case for Anthony. His father started uh, their winery in South Africa in 1987 called Grand Beck, uh, which is a Méthode Champenoise sparkling wine only winery in, uh, in, in the Cape of South Africa. And uh, they then uh, purchased a second winery called Steinberg, uh, in Constantia, which is within Cape Town, really, mm -hmm. um, and that is the oldest running farm in South Africa. Um, 1682, 1684, 1682 or 1684. Um, but yeah, so there's kind of this this weight and the f kind of this substantial um, um, intent that Anthony has, just that kind of that very thoughtful methodical uh, again uh, long-term outlook that that just really realized that made me realize that oh yeah I, that's why i love working for the drones so much because it was so it was you know the real people they were wine people they've always been wine people it's more down to earth it's more you know that i mean as people from they're, they're, they're burgundy nobility but at the same time it's it's wine mm -hmm. and they know what wine is they understand what wine is they understand that it's slow that it's painstaking 
that's you don't make money on either one you're two you're three or you're five um and it was just nice to see that in, see the anthony's ambition passion and set of values mm -hmm. that that's what i just saw in anthony um a, a, a kinship and, and values and uh and also the fact that he was ready to entrust me with a whole lot of things and as i was 26 years old was just amazing and here we are three years later we have a winery built we have a new brand that we're excited to to put out um, new labels um, yeah just the winery is at the vineyards and and it's 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 amazing so three years later it's yeah it's been a three-year process when he hired me three years later the the, the how do you say the the, the top order or the order the, the first Prior thing, the priority. The priority, yeah. There's just the, the big thing was we're going to build a winery, and uh, and uh, right away we started interviewing architects and and end up uh, agreeing with Larry Larry Ferrar, who did Lingua Franca, Lemelson, um, many wineries, Alexana, Adelsheim, uh, and Ilahi. I'm forgetting several wineries. Appassionata, Appassionata for Jay Christopher. Um, anyway, agree with Larry, and then a year later, in summer 2018, two years ago, we started excavating right here. And yeah, summer 2020, the winery is done, and first harvest, finally. So yeah, before it's been yeah, it's been three years of uh, of uh, looking forward to something mm -hmm. a lot, um, mm -hmm. because first vintage for me 2017 with Anthony, and following 2018, the Pinots were made at Canwright Cellars, and so. I, I, I got to um, meet Ken and uh, and uh, and take over the the winemaking, but in his facility, so cooking in someone else's kitchen. <laughs> it's, it's really what it is. And at the same time, I had told Anthony I would like to make Chardonnay. So you don't make any Chardonnay, and and you should. So um, there's you know Chardonnay. Something I learned, I guess, coming here goes in and out of fashion. We're getting rained on. Um, we're getting rained on. In July. Yeah, in July. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's going to be interesting vintage. Um, what was I saying? Yes. Uh, Chardonnay. Chardonnay, like, I guess every varietal around here seems to be going in and out of fashion because the market is such a bit, such a, something that people tend to um, be sensitive to. Hmm? Um, but trend or not trends, I was, you know, for me, Pinot and Chardonnay had, uh, I mean, it's not for me, they just have a kinship, they just, it's hard to, they make sense together, um, they just do. And, uh, and I was making Chardonnay at double zero alongside Pinot Noir at the time and uh, was very happy with the results and I really wanted to uh, keep the momentum in my learning curve and uh, keep you know practicing making Chardonnay and and so uh, 2017 first vintage for me uh, with Anthony we started making Chardonnay at Lingua Franca so I called my friend Thomas and uh, I you know we were doing custom crush in 2016 said hey Thomas um, yeah you know new job um, can we make Chardonnay at your winery I said yeah no problem so since I guess I like driving during harvest <laughs> I would spend the mornings at Cairns in Carlton and drive afternoon and evenings to Lingua Franca to press some Chardonnay. That was every day during harvest for 2017 and 2018. Last year, 2019, because the contract at Canwright Sellers was expiring, 
we moved all the production from Ken Wright to Lingua Franca for one vintage. And now that the winery is done, we moved everything from Lingua Franca back to Carlton um, less than a year later. Yeah. But yeah, 2019 was, was fun making both Pinot and, and, and Chard at Lingua Franca with all, the, all my good friends there, who I think you've interviewed, Thomas, Seth, Andrew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's definitely been at Lingua Franca quite a bit. That's, it, it's, that's a lot of bootstrapped vintages there between multiple sites and multiple, multiple cooks in the kitchen and, and all of that. I'm, I'm curious, what are you most looking forward to with the new facility? Well, um, yeah, at the same time, you learn a lot by seeing a lot of people. Like I know, again, back to my 2016 vintage double zero, I would get, to, I was working in four, basically four facilities and I just learned so much tasting. We would source fruit from, I don't know, two dozen vineyards. Uh, just learning so much so fast, you know, doing so many different things within a few days all the time. And uh, so that's great. And Lingua Franca, the same thing. Or Ken Wright, I mean, just different kitchens, different way to cook, trying to make it work in both places. Um, and making it work in both places. And uh, yeah, just talking with Ken is always is always interesting and there's always something to learn of course um, talking with Thomas, Seth, Andrew my friends and Igor Franca of course we're always kind of working off each other and tasting wine together and, and we're friends and so we're always learning something um, but yeah it's going to be nice to me to be in the place that I've, I've helped design and, and the work tool this is really, it's a work tool it's really a tool to try to to do things the way I envision doing them. So I'm really, I'm amazingly excited for sure. Amazingly excited to, it's not just also working in our own space and making, because of the, it's not just the practical aspect, the practical aspect, I mean, that's that's gigantic. I mean, every piece of equipment is something I've chosen that I've, that I've, I've selected by either using or thinking and mm -hmm. talking with people and just, this has been a long process. The design, every position of every utilities and so on, every house bed and so on, everything has been thought through. Uh, also, although we've definitely missed out on some things, I'm sure, and we'll see that during harvest, it'll surface. I'm like, oh God, I wish this thing was there. <laughs> um, for sure, no question. But it's not just the practical aspects, it's also the opportunity to create our own culture and to do, yeah, to do things with. Uh, in a way, with an intention, with a with a sensibility that would not be possible in someone else's place, just because it's in that place. Those places are imbued with their sensibility, and every little detail has to do with that. Has to do with how they see things and how they imagine things and what they like and what they don't like and so on. So it's just about just the culture and the team we've built here is just amazing. Uh, Christian Marchesi uh, is our uh, I'll say GM, I don't remember what an official title is, but she's our boss. Um, Heath Payne is our viticulturist who studied with us this spring. David Martinez is our assistant winemaker who studied with us a year ago now. Um, hopefully it doesn't rain too hard for the, for the cameras. Yeah. It's all good. It shouldn't rain too hard. It doesn't look like it will, anyway. Um, yeah, just the team, the culture. We're, the, the, we, we all will get along so well and uh, <laughs> um, it's, uh, 
Use my jacket if you need to. No, just the, the like-minded, the, the, the like-minded people as a working together the team and, and kind of create, you know being able to create a. I said it a few times already. The culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious. I want to back up for a second. I'm, I'm curious about your, your your crazy year in 2016, making all those all those wines, all those different facilities. Yeah. How do you? When you're making wine for someone else, and someone else, and, and you're, you're bringing your own sensibilities and your own desires to what the wine is going to be into someone else, w w working with other people, yeah. how do you kind of find that balance between what you want to do and what you're asked to do, or what you have to do because of the because of the situation you're in? Um, I'm not sure I understand the question. So you, I assume you have your own winemaking, you have your own winemaking sensibility, your own winemaking sure. philosophy, yep, sure. but you're working with a lot of other people who have their own uh -huh. also. So how do you balance the idea of what you want to do with every wine yeah. versus what maybe other people who have who are in your boss or your or your coworkers want you to do with it? Yeah, how, how do you kind of find the style and, and keep it unique to each place? Sure. Um, so in that case, so on the more practical standpoint, I'll just so I get that out of the way. The custom crush, the custom crush wineries that were uh, helping me make elites, um, would just I would just give them directives and, and so on. So that was just so there was no there was no disruption there in terms of mm -hmm. message being carried out. And, and those people were all amazing at doing exactly what needed to be done. So that there was no question there. Now, in terms of the the team and say the bosses, there was I mean there was a very powerful creative mind there, Mark Tardoff, who had very specific ideas about how things, well not, not specific, not technical ideas, but how the wines should be, should be interpreted, should be seen as, and so Alitz had to be, they had to be a strong whole cluster portion into Alitz. That was just a part of what those wines were going to be. And I was just fine with me, uh, of course, and that's and that's the right up my alley. But um, that's that's definitely something that was um, a direction that was given by Mark. Then whether it's 20, 30, or 50 50 percent is what was up to me, of course. But um, but that was that was definitely a thing. It had to be native yeast, which is also um, which is also the most natural. Uh, way to work mm -hmm. for me so that's, that's again that's those things that worked out, worked with me very naturally there was no problem there um, so yeah that was even a, a style direction and then on double zero we had to make pinots and amphoras we had to snip the berries um, uh, so yeah the pinots I was working I was working in the footsteps of my predecessors um, mainly what was studied by Mike Yetzel for the shards, it was a blank slate. They had one. There was one vintage before me, um, and but there was really no direction. There was no big idea. So then there it was. There was a blank slate into making distinctive mm -hmm. chardonnays for the World Zero in 2016. Yeah. So that was. Yeah, there was no. You have to do it like this or anything. Yeah. yeah. I know there was style, there was definitely style preferences, I mean, um, but it was it was never told to me you have to taste like it has to taste like that. Mm -hmm. so. And 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 here's I mean and Anthony, and I guess I'm moving forward again, but mm -hmm. and then here's just yeah, Anthony has doesn't will not tell will not tell me how to make the wine, which is and and 
thank you, Anthony, for just letting yeah for for tra for interesting of you know all the making all those wines and uh, I'll do my best. I swear. So now that you have that kind of freedom, t tell me what your wines are going to be. What is what is Abbott claim oh, wine going to be? Uh, the place will tell. I mean, it's not yeah, it's not up to me to decide those things. Um, it's not it's not really up to me. It's it's up to the vineyard. Um, so it's Abbott claim Yamel Carlton. We're on the Savannah Ridge here. The Savannah Ridge is this little ridge that runs west east, mm -hmm. on which you'll find sodas, mineral springs. Us, Bonnie Jean, a handful of other vineyards there. Dominion 4 is on the north side of the Savannah Ridge. It's just our properties are touching up on top of the hill. Uh, they get the north, the north side, we get the south side. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's the site, it's the Savannah Ridge. Uh, you get up to 500 feet up there, you're 200 feet down here, uh, 250. Um, Sedimentary, very, very shallow sedimentary soils, so a lot of those, that old sandstone. So very poor soils, very, very poor soils. They don't hold any water, they don't build humus, they don't build organic matter. Um, they, uh, they don't hold nutrients, so they're, they're tough on the vines. So it's all, it's all about the vineyard. It's all about having vines that are happy, that live in balance, that, um, that are able to be uh, self-sustenance. Is that a, I'm not sure that self-sustaining. Self-sustaining. Yeah. I'm not mm -hmm. sure that was proper English. But uh, yeah, that's and and a lot of a lot of the work has to be done here, based in the vineyard. There's, there's no question about it. Mm. Um, and then and then in the winery, the goal is to just to understand the character of the place and make sure it makes it in the bowl in an understood manner. Um, in a balanced, beautiful, qualitative manner, mm -hmm. but also an undisturbed manner, in a way that speaks of the place that tastes like this place, because this, the vineyard is the most fundamental thing that is to this whole process. Mm -hmm. And people can say whatever they want, but um, um, I can have all the cool ideas and all the most amazing tricks and all the great experience and whatever, but I could be replaced tomorrow by someone else. And what's left is the vineyard, is the vines. So that's where the that's where the deep what that's where the deep story is. That's where the the mean that's where the meaning of it is. It's an agricultural product. It's it's not it's not your it's not the product of your ego. Um, so yeah, whether I'm making the wine, whether someone else is making the wine, I hope whoever makes the wines from this place just has to be sensitive to what this place has to say, what the, what the, the vineyard has to say, mm. and humble enough and knowledgeable enough to let it come through in a palatable way, mm -hmm. because it has to be, <laughs> it has to be the best one it can be. Um, so it's not up to, it's not, there's no, and again, that's, I mentioned earlier that the first, my first harvest with the vineyards, um, I decided to not to distem all the fruit, just because again it was it was just about saying I don't know this place I don't understand and as much as I I've done whole cluster for the past three years at a time um, and I I love whole cluster wines I don't know if I'm going to love whole cluster wines from this vineyard mm -hmm. so I have to start I have to understand it mm -hmm. 
and so on now. There's a bit more stems going back into the process and so on, as, as, as we understand the vineyard. Mm -hmm. But I'm really glad. Uh, I'm glad that's, that's how I went about it. Um, yeah, it's all about being humble and thoughtful and, uh, and mindful of all the, everything, anything that can happen. It's basically, it's really, every, everyone can have the knowledge. Knowledge travels, it gets shared, it's published. Um, it's, it's what you do with it. And I think what I want to do with it is, underst is understand what happens, why it happens and be comfortable with the wine doing anything within boundaries. There's, I have to set myself boundaries at one point with this, maybe something I'm not too comfortable with, mm -hmm. like too much Britannomyces, too much volatile acidity, rusty tannins, uh, overly oxidized wine, overly reduced wine. Uh, those things are my boundaries. And I know, and my job is to know exactly what's what could take the wine there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But within those boundaries, we also have to be thoughtful enough to just let it away once to do. So it's all about letting this place transpire. So no native yeasts, uh, no inoculation whatsoever. Um, uh, partial whole cluster, depending on the vintage. Um, we're doing more and more stems, working with more and more whole cluster now. But it has to be thoughtful. It has to be intentional. Uh, very delicate fermentations, very delicate extraction, very delicate pressing, um, aging, and oak barrels with this. All of this is just, um, yeah, 35% new oak, 40% new oak sometimes, it really depends. Um, a lot of leaves in aging, for the, I'm talking about the Pinot Noir here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, wines that are fresh, that are balanced, that are pretty, that are complex, and that most most of all, just say something about the place, not about me. Uh, because again, I could maybe next maybe next year I'm not here anymore. I don't know. I just get <laughs> fired or maybe I just I don't know, break a leg or something. I don't know. So yeah, I don't matter too much. And if yeah, it's to me this resonates so much more than someone who tells me I'm the best blender mm -hmm. or I'm the best. Uh, I don't know what can people be the best at. Uh, I'm the smartest. I use the best yeasts because they come. They're selected yeast from Burgundy, so that's amazing. Like great. Or I use the best barrels. Wonderful. So your wines taste like the best barrel. I could do that too. I guess I could buy the same barrels. Mm -hmm. I could make the same wine. Um, yeah. I just everything needs to be thought about. Everything is around the fruits and letting the fruit mm -hmm. show what it has to show. So as little disturbance as possible from my end. Just. Mm -hmm hopefully a thoughtful guidance mm -hmm. and same thing in the vineyard that's how heath works as well there's an there's a place here so we have to understand it as a as a system and we just have to do things to allow the vines to live their own life their own balanced harmonious life within that system mm -hmm. and the system is for it to be balanced it has to be complex so encouraging that complexity that diversity that those complications mm -hmm. that chaos in some ways and, uh, and, uh, and understanding that that's what balance comes from. Because balance doesn't mean, balance doesn't mean still. When you reach balance, it's not, it doesn't stop moving. There's always movements. It's just, it has to be a movement that's always around a balance point. There's always, always, always movements everywhere. Balance is not still, if it's still, it's dead. It needs to be alive. 
Um, so it's all about understanding the place and the vines and the soil and the, and the, the terroir and the savanna ridge and just this little place and making sure it's happy and it's balanced and it doesn't get diseased or doesn't get too hot or it doesn't get too cold or it doesn't get, you know, this and that. It just, it's, again, it's being thoughtful about the whole process and making sure it gets gently, we make sure it just stays in its most natural harmonious direction and, and, and points of place of balance. And, uh, and, and that the idea is that that will yield the best those wines can yield in a very transparent and genuine and authentic and undisturbed way. And the winemaking is the exact same thing. It's just a direct continu continuation of that thing, of, of that thought. Mm -hmm. So there's no, yeah, I don't envision the style of the wine. Thank God. <laughs> That'd be very that would be very pretentious. Yeah. So tell me about the the vineyard as you've come to know it so far and and, and tell me about the, the kind of process of learning your site and how, how long it takes and what you're looking for on a site like this we're still doing it we're still doing it um when i arrived the site was and still is live certified um, um but there was in live you can have one early spray of herbicide which is the first thing i did when i started was to stop herbicide spray so that was the very first thing so we then we became people like life plus live organic or whatever it's just um no spray for weeds that's kind of like a baseline at this point it should be um and now we're since last year we're farming organically and we're in the, in the process of getting certified uh, for organic which is really a baseline i mean there's nothing especially thoughtful about organic, about organic viticulture at least. I'll, I'll keep it to viticulture because you're pretty limited in what you can spray to fight uh, pests, to fight disease, cryptogamic, cryptogamic disease, I mean fungi, fungi disease. So there's not, if you just, it's easy, especially in Oregon, it's, I mean, well, usually dry and warm summers right? <laughs> as I'm wiping water off the mic. <laughs> But usually, you know, they're usually dry and, um, and, uh, and, and warm summers really lends itself to, um, um, it's, not a, it's not the most difficult region to farm vines in. You know, there's barely any downy mildew in Oregon. Really barely, there's no, virtually no downy mildew in Oregon. Only powdery mildew. Um, so organic, we think of organic as a baseline and we don't even think about it too much. It's, it, that's a given, and that's behind us now. Or, and and it, it's, we have to go way beyond that. Uh, so it's, there's no label on how this place is going to be farmed. Uh, there's definitely elements that have to do with biodynamics. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, we're gonna be starting out, now we have the winery here, we can start our own compost. So the grapes come into the winery and they go back into the vineyard. Mm -hmm. What's left of the grapes at least. Um, Hopefully, we're looking at partnerships with uh, local growers to um, to get some um, different things. Um, I don't want to I don't want to impede uh, Heath's work, but hopefully, we can uh, you know keep bringing diversity into the place and and, and help us with our with how um, our um, compost program. Um, there will be yeah, some elements of biodynamics, uh, some elements of uh, a very buzzy word now, regenerative agriculture, um, definitely. But those things don't need labels. It's all about just doing what, what makes sense. Um, we have places where we have almost no topsoil. We have to rebuild soil. So it happens that yeah, those are the things that 
central to what today is called regenerative agriculture. Uh, soil life is also a pillar of biodynamics. Uh, but it doesn't matter that it is. Uh, we just have to build soil because those vines need life. They need life around them. The soil needs life. Um, this, that's just what we have to do. So we're in the process of, of um, on the steepest parts of the vineyard where the sandstone is especially shallow, we're in the process of rebuilding soil there. On top of the vineyards where uh, the soil is, the structure of the soil is, is much better. Uh, we're not tilling. Uh, so the, there's a whole piece of the vineyard that has never been tilled since it was planted since 03. Uh, no cultivation since 03, since the vines were planted. On the east side, um, there's some blocks that have been cultivated every other row. So we haven't been cultivated since I started in 2017. That's also one, the first thing I did with taking the, the weed spray out was to stop cultivation on, the, on those upper rows, on those upper blocks, the older blocks. Um, and then, yeah, God, it's endless. I mean, you should interview Heath. We just have so much, we have so much going on. We're doing, you know, trials. Um, what I've been also pushing for since I started was less hedging. This year will be trials of not hedging at all in a couple of blocks. We also need to do leaves, left pulling. Um, so the, the, gen, the, the common wisdom here is um, leaf on the east side, not on the west side, which is fine. Um, but maybe no leaf pulling at all, maybe very light, maybe very late, we're gonna see. But we really wanna dial, dial that down quite a bit. Um, and uh, many, just many things, um, like I just, I'm sorry, what was your question? <laughs> I'm curious about getting to know the site. Yeah, but we, it's, it's forever. It's, it never, we, we, don't, we don't get to a point where, oh, good, I've got it all. Close the book, next, no. <laughs> endless, it's endless. Um, we're learning the site right now. We're learning the site right now. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a warm, dry site. It's all dry farm, uh, and it's a dry site. The, the soil doesn't hold, doesn't hold water. And it's a warm spot, it tends to ripen earlier. And because we want wines that are long-lived, that are fresh, and that are delicious to drink, but also that are resistant to deviations without us having to add too much sulfur, or filter too hard, or filter at all, because those things strip the wine, they uh, disturb the wine and disturb the expression of the transparent expression I was talking about. We don't want that. We want a seamless expression of the place into the finished product. We want the finished product to, to, to tell that story. So if you're doing those violent things like adding too much sulfur, uh, like filtering too hard and so on, or having to fine too hard, you, you, you're disturbing that expression. So, because we want wine to be, um, to be, uh, to not be uh, a natural playground for, um, for such and such deviations, uh, it needs to have good natural acidity, it needs to have a strong pH. So, again, this is an early ripening vineyard, and we want good natural acidities. So you've got to pick earlier, and you have to learn when you have vineyards that ripen, that accumulates sugar very fast. You have to learn how to deal with grapes that have a lot of sugar that you've picked early. Um, you have to learn how you, you build the wine, mm -hmm. and it's, it's, diff it's a different way to work than, say, picking at... Um, I'm not going to use bricks. Picking at 1095 density, 1097 density, 
uh, it's a different you you know aiming at you know, potentially getting 13.5 14 percent alcohol and beyond you're just structuring wines completely differently you're making it you know it's, it's different so yeah it has to we're still learning the site we're just learning every year we're gonna learn we're gonna actually learn a lot this year just because being in our own place being able to have 100% control on everything we do not this does or the grapes do but at least we have control on what we do when you're in someone else's place you don't always have control about what you do when you do it how you do it and so on right? and what you do it with but here at least it's we have control about how we do things um, and so we're going to learn a whole lot more because we're going out we're basically going to be able to be taken i mean the logistic part of it is going to be able to be taken out of the equation mm -hmm. and we're going to have a more transparent process mm -hmm. um, so we're going to learn, learn a whole lot and we're doing those trials with light or no leafing tying instead of hedging uh, that we're going to be fermenting separately and so on so we'll be able to learn more and all of that actually th those trials that i just mentioned have to do with what i was just hinting, hinting at hinting at was that those trials is, is a way to how do we work with such an early ripener site mm -hmm. trying to preserve acidity have ripe tannins because tannins are so important especially in Pinot Noir where those tannins, the ripeness of the tannins is so delicate and so how do we make all that work together mm -hmm. and we don't and there's no and there's no making 14% Pinot there's none of that because two things one 14% I mean I, I'm, I, sh I shouldn't um, I shouldn't exaggerate but Overripe, overripe red grape tastes like overripe, overripe red grape. By um, that's that's a big, that's a general statement, but you get to a place where things start to taste like each other. Um, there's less opportunity for differentiation, um, and beyond all the whole the whole chemistry of of ripening and and the problems with that thinking. That's I mean. Yeah, aromatic ripeness is not a thing. It does not exist for Pinot Noir because it's not, it's not an aromatic varietal. So it's, it's that simple. It exists for, give us time enough if you want, or Muscat, Sauvignon Blanc. It does not, it does not exist for Pinot Noir because um, the varietal character of Pinot Noir is completely different from its secondary fermentation aromatics and its tertiary aging uh, aromatics. There's, any, there's a um, but what was, it, what, was it, what I was going to was there's no making those wines there's no making 14 and, and plus overripe wines and picking overripe grapes just because it doesn't taste like the place anymore it doesn't taste like what's fundamental to this whole process and if you don't talk about what's fundamental about this whole process then you're just talking about something that anyone can take from you and reproduce and replicate mm -hmm. if you make a wine that tells the story of this place no one else can make that wine it's and and it's a true and it's it becomes something truly unique and tr something worth be interested in i think mm -hmm. um i guess that's a that's an opinion i guess yeah i suppose it is an opinion it's only an opinion but and finally we don't make those wines because we need natural acidity to make wines that are stable and that we don't have to beat up with sulfur or um, sterile filter every year and so on and so on and so on. Mm. So we're making wines that are transparent. Mm. Mm. So what has 
changed in the Oregon wine industry since you've been a part of it and, and what does it look like now maybe versus what it did when you started? Oh God, I have no idea. <laughs> Um, but too busy making wine at a bunch, a bunch of different places. Yeah, and I'm, I'm always, I mean, I'm not, it's maybe not great, but I'm not, yeah, I'm not the most active. Um, I'm not the most, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not the loudest personality in the wine industry, so. And, uh, and I like it, I like it that way. <laughs> um, so, I guess I'm maybe a symptom of, there have been changes and I'm maybe a symptom of it, um, more young people, more international people, more people who are influent, who are rightfully so looking back to the old world for inspiration. And there's nothing wrong about doing that. There is really nothing wrong about looking back to Burgundy for inspiration, for example. And it's very, very simple. It always has to make sense on a simple level. This saying that this is Oregon, it's not Burgundy, is not good enough of a reason to still not go look and back at the place that gave birth to Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Gave birth to all the clones that people are planting here over acres and acres. Um, Pinot Noir became, Pinot Noir di became, differentiated itself from Vitis Vinifera, from general uh, un uh, un undifferentiated red grape, mm -hmm. mutated into Pinot Noir, in Burgundy because of the very specific, very, very specific climatic, geologic, landscape, people's way to work the land, all of those things ended up tipping the balance towards a genotype and a phenotype that we ended up calling Pinot Noir. So if we want to be plant, if we're planting ridiculous amount of Pinot Noirs and making amazing, mind-blowing amounts of Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley, it's only natural to, if you want to be thoughtful and to understand what Pinot Noir is and what it, what it naturally desires as, as, as a plant, it's only natural to go back to what it was um, or was planted. That's all good. Our mics, our mics are pretty localized. I think that's our hedger. So this is obviously not the non-hedging <laughs> trial. So we're doing that. We're doing that up the hill. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're hedging down there. So it makes sense. So, so what do you do? You see that trend continuing in terms of? I, oh God, I have no idea. Um, I won't. I. Um, I'm not the one to make uh, prono uh, pronostics or um, prognostication. Pronostications. Okay. I'm not another one to make assumptions about the future, but um, maybe what you hope the future will look like here in Oregon. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, it's 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 happening for the past for the past 20 years. I think some of the most successful wineries that have come out of Oregon have definitely had an open mind about um, about how to how to work how to work a vineyard, how to make wine, and and a lot of people are tasting wines from all over the world and, and gathering inspiration from that. And I've, I was only talking about Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, but um, it's great to see that there's um, more diversity than that in the Willamette Valley. And that's all the people who are planting those older varietals and making those wines. Uh, that, st that stems from that open mind and that desire for, for something different. And, and it's, it's all very, it's all very healthy. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a great energy. 
So what I've, what I've seen change is that that direction of of going back of going back to something a bit more simple and a bit more classic and and less recipe based because you know those those wines in the late 20th, 20th century it was quite a process in the, in, in, in the US I mean and that that had an impact in France and all over the world because the US markets had that impact and the US publications had that impact but um, yeah that, those wines were quite a process because yeah there was a lot of technology and it's not just in the winery it was also in the vineyards I mean that's you know that's when clones booms is in the 70s and 80s and control people love control especially especially um, it's it's one of the part of the cultural changes I've learned as to answer your past questions about what I've learned about the, the Oregon way or the American way that's definitely that's more than American way it's just control mm-hmm. people love control and so in the vineyards there's many ways that control is expressed um, blankets planting of single clones is one um, commercial yeasts Mm-hmm. Late ripening, um, uh, uh, still filtration, and so on, and so on, and so on. Mm-hmm. All things about control and, and being able to replicate a result, mm-hmm. to re- replicate an expected result. Um, and as I was saying earlier, you have to be thoughtful, and you have to have boundaries beyond what the wine doesn't taste like itself anymore. It doesn't taste like the place anymore. Too much vier doesn't taste like the place. Too much bread and mice doesn't taste like the place, and so on. But you have to be comfortable by letting it, letting it express, exp- express itself, uh, letting the, pr- the praise express itself into the grapes, letting the, gr- the grapes express that information into wine. Mm. So we have, to, yeah, we have to let it be to definitely to some extent. It's very important. Mm. Or there's no discussion about terroir. There's no conversation about terroir to be had if, if, if we're disturb it, disturbing that expression. Mm. Um, so that, there's definitely been an evolution. I'm just a symptom, symptom of that. I'm just a guy who's... Uh, not quite 30 years old yet, uh, who just showed up from France and uh, with uh, this type of sensibility. And I'm happy to see that there's more and more wineries, the successful ones in Oregon, who are bad. I mean, it's just many names that come to mind, but I mean, it's just so easy. Walter Scott, Bergstrom, Lingua Franca, um, Bethel Heights being a pioneer, but at the same time, under the... the, 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 under the the leadership of Ben is just also embracing that, that all that thoughtfulness. Um, Christum, same thing. Christum, same thing. Uh, all you know, all the winery, all things put, in, all things equal, I mean, all things put in perspective. But at this scale, all the winery, established winery with with Steve, but also just always so thoughtful and so so sensitive so sensible to to what doesn't happen just there but also trying to do better mm-hmm. um same thing beaufrère same generation and mikey is taking it is taking it when when it's to go and um and i'm forgetting so many wineries but yeah i mean what it would have you've met seth morgan long I and mean, he's he's just like he's a symptom too um <laughs> his he's i mean he's not just I, mean, I guess i'm more of a symptom because i'm more of an outsider but he no he's an oregonian and just yeah, so those people are, are the change, and uh, and there's just and that's impacting because at the same time, what really drives this whole thing is, I mean a lot what a lot of dri- a big driver not what it drives at all but a big driver ends up being 
those dollar bills. And because the market is receptive and the press is receptive and those things are being talked about, they're being talked about in, under positive lights. That's what really makes a difference is that, you know, those guys, these guys I just mentioned could have made the same ones 30 years ago, 30 years ago, wrong place, wrong time. Um, but right now there's just this whole dynamic where you have people who are, the con consumers are liking different wines, they've edu edu educating themselves and they've gone from wines of one style to wines of another style. And uh, it happens to be that you have all those thoughtful people here. Or, and I think this, I, I really, maybe I'm biased, but I really think, I don't think this is an opinion, I think it's, this is objective. I think this is an objective, um, I think this is closer to a fact than an opinion, is that it is more complicated and it asks for more thoughtfulness to make wine this way. It does. Learning to say, I don't know, learning to say, let it go is very complicated and it has to, and it has to come with a high level of technical understanding. It's not just, I'm gonna wing it. Um, although some people do, which, you know, why not? And people also respond to that. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I humbly think that um, it is also, I think it is the most, um, well, it is the way of, of working I align with. That's obviously the ideas I, I brought forward. I also think it is a more it asks for more of more of your attention i was just telling david our assistant winemaker last week about earlier this week maybe about my my <clears throat> my relationship with things like biodynamics for example and again labels and and recipes i mean there's you know biodynamics is there's, there's, it's been written down, and there's Rudolf Steiner's Biodynamic is that's the book right there. That's Le Cours aux Agriculteurs. And then Mariatin applied it and so on. But oh, if you don't want to go buy the book, because if you have to go buy the book, you need cows on the property. You're not, you're not bringing cows from the neighbor. You're not bringing you know manure from the neighbor. You're not. This is not. This is not Steiner's Biodynamics. Mm -hmm. um, but the thoughtfulness, the attention, the, 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 the attention, it just forces you to pay so much more attention, to be so aware and sensitive to your environment, to the vines, to the grapes, to the soil, to the, to the life in the soil, around the vines. It's just the, the amount of, of intellectual energy that, it asks, that it's asking of you is high. Um, although, yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe those very technical wines that have been made and so successful, you know, those technical wines, yeah, they ask for high level of technical knowledge. They ask for a lot of ingenuity into uh, creating uh, the first cross-flow filter applicable to wine and improving those machines and, and you know, applying reverse osmosis and, and, and and machine harvesters and, and so on. I mean, so much ingenuity. This, that's, maybe, I'm, yeah, maybe I'm just full of, full of it. Um, that's, that's maybe that's just my, my bias speaking there because there's, there's so much intelligence. Um, I guess for me, it's just a matter of when, when, how do you direct it? Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. 
You see, you talked about this year being a, a big learning year for you now. You're doing your first harvest here on site, so you're going to learn a lot about the site and about, the, about mm -hmm. the winery. So what are you hoping for this year and beyond? What are you looking forward to uh, for yourself and here at Abbott Claim for the next, say, five or ten years? I'm really excited. I'm really excited. I'm just amazingly excited all over. And because it's a big excitement feeling, it's going to be hard to uh, get into why specifically. But... Um, we're learning the vineyard and it just feels great to feel like we're getting to understand things and we're starting to feel, feel like we have really good things to try and I'm really excited to see the results of it again. We have different, we've been thinking about a lot of different things about how to make the vineyards but also the rears of the property that are not planted to vines, how to, make, how to do them better mm -hmm. and how to create a, a more harmonious, healthy, mm -hmm. Uh, piece of land. Um, um, there's a word that I'm just I've been looking for in English. That's just uh, a common one. I just can't find it. Would have been nice to uh, be appropriate, but anyways, uh, yeah, resilient. That's that's what I was looking for. So I just need I need a second or two. Yeah, just make it a more harmonious, balanced, and resilient place mm -hmm. that can live by. They can just do its own job by itself. Just can. We don't always have to, you know. Add something, or just oh, gotta gotta, gotta patch a hole here, gotta mm -hmm. put a bandaid on it all the time. Um, so that's 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 so amazingly important, and, I, and I'm, we're really seeing it, seeing the practical directions here. That, so that we're gonna start implementing, and and Heath coming in was key to that. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the winemaking side, which again is direct, is just it's the same process. There's no two, there's not two processes broken. Mm -hmm. not just with a split in the middle, it's the exact same process. Um, yeah, just understanding the grapes and understand, understanding what the grapes want, what they want, and, um, and being able to provide that. Um, uh, we have concrete tanks and wood tanks, which are going to be really wonderful for fermentation. It's going to be really wonderful for fermentation because of those thermal inertias, so very delicate extractions, especially for native yeast, it's extremely important. You don't want swings. You don't want, you don't want big deltas of high, low temp and high temp during, during cuvaison because native yeast don't like uh, drastic temperature changes. Even, you know, jacket, jacketed stainless steel tank, yes, but still uh, very little insulation. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but the wood tanks and, and concrete tanks have this natural thermal inertia just because of the material, so you end up having those very delicate temperature swings you know, raising up and down. And so that's makes for happy yeasts, but also more delicate extractions. And then the other exact, exciting part is to be able to finish the aging of the wines, you know, taking them to barrel and then putting them back into those tanks to let them uh, yeah, finish maturing. So it's nice to have those materials that are breathing materials, concretes hmm. and woods. And the selection of those specific concrete tanks was actually a big, was um, the, the internet, the, this was a big intention to just find the right concrete to to get the right, the, the, the right impact on, mm -hmm. the, the, the right impact on the wines. Because mm -hmm. those, again, going back to, this is a dry and warm site, it tends to be very concentrated. So you need gentle ways to uh, integrate tannins. Um, so extract tannins and then mature the wines. And uh, and yeah, and the goal being not to not too fine, 
you have to find ways to uh, oxygen is the best way to do this mm -hmm. for sure mm -hmm. so a lot of things i don't know if i've really answered your question it's just it's uh, just about everything everything <laughs> yeah just about everything is exciting everything Oof, yeah there's just been a lot of things just on the chardonnay side there have been things i've been wanting to do uh, that's can't always get to do when you're in, in someone else's place sure. so that's going to happen to this year and yeah so yeah being able to see trials translate into the winery being able to do different things in the winery with new tanks that i've that i've that, I've, that we've actually put an order in for like, over a year and a half ago already now that are finally here and we're finally going to put grapes in um yeah little little things in the process little little you know just little things that but they, they have to be delicate things. They can't be, they're not, none of it is drastic. There's no drastic changes. And there's, it's, it's always, it's always something that, that, that is, um, is always just trying to delicately steer something in the direction. Or it's maybe just, actually it's not even steering, it's just maybe moving a boundary somewhere just a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, it has to be able to do its thing. It's maybe, but yeah, just moving one boundary somewhere else. So, yeah. Do you have a, a size in mind? Do you have a Do you have any intention a, a size of production? Do you have a, any intention beyond Pinot and Chardonnay? So for Abbot Claim, um, since Pinot and Chardonnay is is all that is planted here on the property, and um, because I think it's it's it, our desire with Abbot Claim is is a is a small production and a strong fo very focused uh, label. Um, I don't see us veering outside of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. Now Angela Vineyards, uh, used to be Angela Estate, but Angela Vineyards now, um, with the freedom, with, the, with the, 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 the dynamics and the freedom of, 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 of the label. Um, yeah, there's Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, we made a, I made a rosé in 2019 at Lingua Franca, Pinot Rosé, which is, yeah, a topic. And, um, oh, I just found some Syrah from the Gorge from the Gorge AVA, not the Valley, yes. from the Gorge this year, which I'm really excited about, very, very excited about. So we'll do a little bit of Syrah this year as well, and we're always on the, we're always on the, we're always thinking about something else, mm -hmm. doing something else. Mm -hmm. And Angela really allows for, for that, more, that more dynamic, uh, those are more dynamic wines. So yeah, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, I grew up in the Rhone Valley. All my family is from the Loire Valley in France, but I, my parents moved into the Rhone Valley when I was five years old. And uh, so those wines were the other wines, apart from the one that had big, that really grew, uh, that ra raised me from the wine pot. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really happy to be able to make some Sierra this year. Um, and yeah, more, yeah, the future holds more wonderful, diverse things for sure. So it's gonna be a lot of fun. Excellent. All the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Is there anything no, we didn't I mean, cover? No, that's not. I mean, I, I don't have any desire to speak about anything specific. I don't think. Okay. Yeah, no, thank you. Covered it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today, hospitality, showing off the new facility and sure. uh, all your stories and, and, and thoughts here. So, go ahead and let you off the hook. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more.
and stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.